So the book is Developer's Dilemma, The Secret World of Video Game Creators, and we have Casey O'Donnell on the show with us today. So thank you, Casey, for coming on New Books and Technology. Thank you for having me. <laughs> no problem. So one of the first things we always like to do on New Books and Technology is have the authors tell us a little bit about themselves, even before we get to the book. So give us a little bit of your background. Sure. Um, so I have kind of a strange background. Um, uh, I, you know, I was a computer science major uh, in undergrad and started doing the software development thing. Uh, I worked for Jet Propulsion Labs and then got hired by a small game company and sort of worked in the game industry for a while. Um, but I also had a sociology minor and a women's studies minor, which meant that eventually I was destined for destined for grad school. Um, and uh, you know, I was working at a game company, and then I left that game company and uh, went to work for um, a company that does design automation. That's what they called it at the time. Nowadays, we'd call it like uh, tools um, or tools in game development. So. Uh, I was doing that, and I looked around, and I was like, wow, there's all these really interesting social interactions that happen in companies like this. And, uh, you know, the dot-com flop was happening, and the economy was breaking up, and I could kind of see those things play out in the workplace. And I was like, man, somebody really needs to study this. How would you do that? (laughs) And so uh, I I found myself, uh, you know, going back to graduate school. uh, I went to Rensselaer Polytechnical Institute. or sorry, Rensselaer Polytech Institute uh, in Troy, Troy, New York, and uh, in this strange uh, interdisciplinary program called Science and Technology Studies, and it was great. I spent five years there, um, four of which were uh, spent at uh, Vicarious Visions, which is this game studio uh, in upstate New York. So that's kind of the process of how I got to where the book started. Uh, <laughs> Okay, great. So let's 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 get into the book. So the book is Developers Dilemma: The Secret World of Video Game Creators. Why Developers Dilemma? <laughs> uh, that's a good question, and uh, it's funny because the uh, the original title of the book was actually uh, Developers in the Mist, playing off <laughs> Gorillas in the Mist, and <laughs> sure. I, I think I even mentioned it like, in the book that uh, that was partially because it's how you know these game developers came to see me. I was. Uh, uh, you know, I was their Diane Fossier, their Jane Goodall, <laughs> and and that was that was fine. That was a great way. Uh, but uh, for some reason, people didn't like that title, <laughs> and so I, I set about uh, trying to find a new title. And continually in the book, there's this question of uh, you know, are developers going to cooperate and work together, or are they going to keep playing by the rules that the game industry has has set up for them. And it, it was, became a really nice um, metaphor to think about it like the prisoner's dilemma. And so if you're not familiar with the prisoner's dilemma, uh, basically you can uh, defect and throw uh, your teammate under the bus and have the possibility of a greater reward, uh, or maybe you're both just hosed. Um, or if you cooperate, you have a more modest reward. Um, of course, the catch is if you know that the optimal solution is to always cooperate, why wouldn't you defect knowing that the other person being so nice uh, is going to give you that opportunity for greater gain? Mm-hmm. 
So that's where the, the title came from. And for me, it was this tension for so many game developers, right? Like, um, <clears throat> so many issues come up, um, in the world, uh, worlds of game developers. And you s- see people start cooperating and trying to, to make headway on an issue. And so in this, in the book, it was uh, quality of life was one of those things and, mm-hmm. and finding a more sustainable work life balance. And all it takes is a new console cycle <laughs> to, to get developers to throw one another under the bus. And so um, that's where the title came from was this question of, well, what would a more open and cooperative and collaborative game industry look like? So is developer's dilemma kind of and, and the prisoner's dilemma, kind of like Saw, right? That's the various <laughs> iterations of that movie. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know, to to what ends will you go uh, to 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 be the one who has access to the shiny tech, or you know, uh, not to to win per se, because it's life; it's not a game. Right. Um, but developers certainly, you know, anytime. Just like a physicist looks at the world and sees physics, uh, game developers often look at the world and see games. So, so I want to ask you about the research choices you made. You chose to do an ethnography mm-hmm. of video game designers, developers, and why did you choose ethnography? Uh, that's a really great question. I, I think what I like most about ethnography is that you get a richness of data and you get to ask kinds of questions and tell stories that get lost in uh, surveys or get lost in this emphasis, uh, increasingly an emphasis on big data and analytics and, uh, and everything about ethnography. Uh, there's a ton of data, <laughs> but it's, it's very much about highlighting individual comments, um, individual experiences, and trying to tie those things to broader phenomenon in the world, um, trying to show what it's like for the everyday person in a given community and, and point to <clears throat> the interesting things that you see there. So it's, in some ways, it's the, the opposite side of the coin to where I see um, a lot of emphasis placed now in terms of big data analytics uh, and yeah. And, and so ethnography is uh, spending a lot of time and getting to know a community of people and trying to, to tell a story that speaks to broader, um, broader issues. Sure. So, one of the things I, I've found enjoyable about the book, it, well, the whole book is enjoyable. Just Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's a foundational thing. But one of the things I found enjoyable about the book is the creativity you're able to use. So you split it into worlds and um, <laughs> rants and, 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 you know, big box levels and those kinds of things, you know, reminding us, those of us who play games or still play games, of um, the games, basically. And, yeah. and tell us about the choice to, to do those things. 
and whether or not it was like accepted by the publisher in the first place. <laughs> well, that's a really great question because uh, one of the things that I tell um, <clears throat> graduate students out there who are, you know, the, or uh, recent PhDs who are thinking about writing books is don't do what I did, uh, <laughs> which is there are so many weird things about the book. Um, and in part, I th- for me, it was really important um, that the book be playful because my informants were unplayful or my informants were playful. And the game industry is this kind of weird, goofy, playful space. Um, you know, despite all of the idiosyncrasies, it really is kind of playful. And so I, I really felt that the book needed to speak to that. Um, and so for me, um, I kind of always envisioned, you know, these worlds and this, this metaphor of Super Mario Brothers. And, you know, I wanted to be able to also write both in a scholarly way, but also in a way that was accessible um, or even spoke to um, the things that I knew game developers would, would want to read about themselves. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> as far as the publisher, a- MIT is great for uh, putting up with me and such a weird book. Um, and, and I hope that people come to it and, and see it as a playful kind of uh, entry. Uh, I read a lot of uh, op-eds about, well, wouldn't it be great if uh, academic writing were a little <laughs> bit goofier? And, uh, but then when you go and try to do it, it's, it's, it's really challenging. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's easy for um, a more senior scholar to, to say, hey, we should be accessible and playful. And for somebody like myself going to do the first book, it was terrifying. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, there were a couple of other publishers that were um, decided not to, to go after the book because of its strangeness. <laughs> well, I, I think that's their loss. <laughs> um, one of the other things, you know, you just mentioned is that you, you wrote in a, such a way that you thought, video game developers themselves would perhaps like to see themselves or, or the structure of the book. And so the question is, who did you write the book for? Who did you think your audience for the book would be? Um, <clears throat> that's, a, uh, that's a great question. I think uh, I, I really wrote it for, um, for three audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, one was for scholars, um, you know, it, it, it is an academic text, and, uh, and so I definitely viewed people interested in uh, science and technology or um, people interested in games. Uh, I, I wrote it for them, um, but I also wrote it for game developers. Uh, they tend to be a pretty um, introspective crowd, mm-hmm. and, you know, for years they've been writing and reading postmortems in what used to be the game developer magazine, but now on on sites like Gama Sutra, and so it's clear that they like to read about themselves. And so I, I wanted them developers to be an audience, but I also wanted uh, anybody who's interested in, uh, for lack of a better metaphor, uh, how the sausage gets made. Um, <laughs> 
Right, so somebody that's really interested in games but has never really thought about the fact that games are people. Um, and, and so I wrote it for those people as well, sort of that moment of, oh, wow, people make games? Um, because so often, you know, games disappear, or, or the people behind games disappear behind, you know, big names like uh, Electronic Arts, Activision, and, and so allowing the people behind games to, to be visible again um, was a really important part of why I wrote the book. Absolutely. And, you know, you talk about the disappearing developers in the book. And I wanted to know if you could talk about that phenomenon. You, you just started to mention uh, the fact that there are perhaps hundreds of developers working on uh, various games at various times, but we don't, they're anonymous. We don't know who those people are. And you, you talk about that in the book. Please talk about that now. Yeah. Um, that was, that was a big part of it for me, you know, and in some ways it's changed a little bit, you know, because this book is really from, you know, 2004 to 2008. And one of the things that I think has changed uh, significantly is, you know, the number of developers that are active on Twitter, uh, for example. And so you can actually find more developers than you used to, but, but for every developer who's active on Twitter, there's probably 20 or more that aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some of them are active on Twitter uh, because they've had to become so, because they're either freelancers or indie. Um, and so there's still um, a, a lot of people who aren't visible behind these things. And um, part of... Part of that motivation was probably selfish. When I was working on games, uh, I felt a little bit invisible. And so uh, the desire to to make those things more obvious, uh, I think you can point to a lot of um, industries or jobs and people kind of don't understand what goes into the day-to-day of work. I mean, we all do it. We go to work and we perform lots of mundane activities uh, that, you know, we're never famous for, but they're just as critical as the things that people are known for. And so um, uh, that was a big part of um, even what at first attracted me to, to, to graduate school in the first place. Uh, was the invisibility of, you know, your everyday run-of-the-mill tech worker. Mm-hmm. Now, in the book you talk about uh, video game development, but you also talk about the need for to differentiate between video game development and software development. Um, and I think most people conflate the two, right? So how are they? Heck, heck yeah. Uh, so uh, a funny story is... Uh, 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 an early essay that I wrote uh, that sort of came from some of this material, one of the uh, the, the blind peer reviews that that essay got, uh, the, the reviewer said something along the lines of, isn't this just software studies? Isn't this just software? And, you know, why is this research even novel? Um, and uh, And I thought to myself, well, that's a really good question. And it also made me really mad. So I actually wrote a whole... Uh, essay, uh, which is published in as a chapter in um, this 
collected volume. Uh, but the name of that essay is called This Is Not a Software Industry. And for me, it has a, a great deal to do with the composition um, of the kinds of people working. I mean, you know, even on web development, you have uh, artists and programmers and designers. Uh, you know, so I, I'm sure that uh, there's quite a variety of people that work on software. Um, but game development really mashes together in this really intense way artists, game designers, and software engineers um, in a way that if you just think of it as software, you're not, you're not allowing the artists and the game designers to have uh, level, uh, be on a level playing field, right? Suddenly it's, it's just the, soft, the, the work that the software engineers are doing that's important. And if you look at any game engine, you know, so Unreal is out there, and, and that's software, but it doesn't make a game, right? Mm-hmm. It takes all of this in labor and collaboration and artwork and ideas about game mechanics and system design and all of that stuff to really make a game. And so to say it's software sort of just erases, you know, two-thirds of, of, of the kind, kinds of creative activity that goes into games. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a great transition because in your book you talk about one of the focuses is about collaborative practice, the, the entire um, practice of getting a game from its inception to, you know, ship it is one of yeah. the terms you use. So collaborative practice, what does that, you know, mean for video game development? Collaborative practice is, is really about trying to understand another human being that maybe has a different way of understanding the problem or the world or whatever you're working on. And um, it's actually really hard to listen to somebody and try to understand what they're trying to do and to translate between that and your understanding of how a thing works or what a thing is supposed to be. And, and so collaboration really occurs at those friction points between, you know, so an artist looks at the world and sees it one way and, and they look at the problems they encounter in game development and they see it from their perspective. And an engineer, a software engineer, sees a very different world and they speak different languages and, and collaboration is about them figuring out how, not just figuring out, but appreciating how the other person sees the world so that they can bridge those gaps. And, you know, I talk a little bit in the book about tools engineers and technical artists as being these sort of hybrid intermediary people that have emerged, you know, at those friction points. Um, But collaborative practices is ultimately about being good at listening and understanding and trying to... uh, um, it's yes. <laughs> Let me say that again. Um, <clears throat> it's about listening, understanding, and trying to um, 
really appreciate where somebody else is coming from, even though uh, you may not know exactly where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about myth for a second. You know, we're, we're talking about the, the kind of people who do work on video game development, but I think in popular culture, the idea is that it's mostly men, mostly young, young, young white guys working in video game development, and they're all like nerd programmer stereotype. <laughs> and, and yet you talk about, you know, it's not just the programmers, but also the artists and the designers. So what does the myth of the video game developer mean for actual video game development? Um, you know, and, and like most myths or stereotypes, uh, there are certainly a heck of a lot of white, nerdy uh, people that work in games. <clears throat> and, and, you know, and that's okay, too. Um, oh, I think battling the myth of what game development is uh, is probably, I think, my, I hope, one of the major contributions that that this book can make, because that that would be my phone, um, uh, because there is a mythology of what game development is. <clears throat> when I worked in games, my grandmother, uh, you know, and now I'm a game academic, and so my grandmother says it even more often, which is, "Well, do you play games all day?" <laughs> and it's like, no, this is this is actual work. Um, and it's hard work and we solve interesting and hard problems. Um, and the myth of, um, the, the stereo, the myth of the stereotypical game developer, I think limits the number of people interested in making games, right? If, if all you have is this white male nerdy, person as the sole person, the sole identity of who makes games, you know, if that's not you, you're not going to be interested in it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, once you start to say, well, hey, there are artists and there are different kinds of artists and there are audio people and there are design people and, you know, some of them have bands on the side. I mean, they're, they're creative people. And so <clears throat> they're not just defined by, you know, a lot of them do like games or are interested in video games, but you know, a lot of them are interested in atypical things, right? You know, so uh, sports or, or you know, normal things and you know, that game developers are people too um, and, and normal people at that and people that want to have families and want to do normal people things uh, is an important part of what I'm trying to to say in the book is that, you know, game games are people and, uh, and it can and should be more diverse. Um, uh, You know, diversity is something that I doesn't really come up in the book, um, but it's something that's become very important in the game industry. You know, if, if I was doing the same project four years later, that would be a huge aspect of, of what's in there. Um, you know, but I think part of the reason why, um, you know, there is this newfound interest 
in diversity amongst developers is in part because they recognize that, you know, the studios that are diverse and are interesting are doing cool and interesting things. And developers are looking at themselves and saying, hey, you know, there, there actually is, you know, value to, to, to more diversity and different ways of thinking, um, you know, and going back to that idea of collaboration, right? Like the more different your perspective is, more than likely, the more creative it'll be as you are able to bridge those, um, those boundaries of understanding. So I, I think the, the mythology of who a game developer is and, and what game development work is are, I think, two of the major things, two of the things that I was hoping to, to, to com- combat with the book. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that stereotype of the game developer is a bit of antisocialness and a lack of social interaction. Um, and, and yet you talk about in the book the the importance of interactivity and the interactivity's implications for video game development. Um, yeah, uh, <clears> that <throat> developers actually have to be able to talk to each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and not only that, but figure out ways to talk about really abstract um, ideas and systems and... Um, Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's complicated, <clears throat> and and help artists understand how to translate, you know, because um, it, graphic design is one thing, but if you tell a graphic designer, okay, now we need to break apart this beautiful thing that you've made into all of these puzzle pieces so that we can put it into motion in the game, like mm-hmm. that's that's a very complicated thing, and figuring out how to do that well. Um, is is really hard and and interactivity is um a tough one right <clears throat> we encounter it ourselves every day you know you get 50 emails and do you stop writing or stop doing the thing that you're doing or you know do you maybe sort of let the emails sit and wait but you know in an industry that loves interactivity right they they love to produce interactive games and so there is this desire for work itself to, to be interactive like a game. And sometimes that's not what you need. Sometimes you need some peace and quiet and uh, <laughs> time to think about a problem or formulate an idea. And, and so that's a real tension um, for developers, um, I think, is, is finding the right balance between, um, you know, time for collaboration and time for, um, internal slow thought uh, about problems and issues. Sure, and, and you, you just mentioned the, the need to find balance, and one of the uh, other focus areas in the book is about the workplay um, balance and also quality of life. Um, you know, looking at the infamous EA spouse um, rant, if you will, that was left on Live Journal, but also looking at the amount of time that when it's crunch time that developers and those working in the industry have to spend at work um, working on um, these projects and the toll it may take on their quality of life or life outside of development. Yeah. Um, and, and, and for me, that was probably uh, quality of life was probably one of the single biggest 
um, things that sort of moved through uh, the game industry while I was while I was doing this work. Um, and you know, I did I did see marriages and and um, people have <clears throat> arguments with significant others because they're spending so much time at work. And, and so that's complicated and it's still an issue in the game industry today. Um, and, um, and I think it's, it, it goes beyond the game industry. I think there are lots of places where compulsory overtime or a culture of overtime, um, is, is more common than we'd like to, to believe. I would say academia is probably one of those places too. Um, it's a little bit terrifying when oftentimes I look at some of my old notes and I'm like, wow, how that, how is that any different than where I'm working? Um, but, uh, um, I think as individuals get closer to the creative things that they make, um, and, um, right. So the distance between, especially, you know, for a rank and file game developer, you know, they can point to individual objects in a game and be like, Hey, I did that. Right. So, um, you know, the guy that did all of the animations for Spider-Man and Spider-Man three, you know, he can be like, look, I did all that. And so that person is very present in their work. Um, and, and even though they may be invisible behind, you know, the name Spider-Man or the name Activision or, uh, whatever, there's a pride that goes with that. And, um, and you, you know, you do show up in the credits and, and so I think as people get closer to the, the things that they produce and their name is more associated with them, um, there's a willingness to, to do that kind of crazy overtime and, and that's not always healthy. And so again, you know, figuring out what the, the right balance is, um, and so going back to the prisoner's dilemma, uh, you know, if, if everybody's fighting to get into the game industry, to, to work in the game industry, and no one, uh, if you leave the office at a sensible time and, uh, and nobody else does, right, because, well, they're just so happy to be there, you know, that, that one person who's trying to find balance gets thrown under the bus just because, you know, other people might not be in a place in life where they're ready to, to make that commitment. And so, um, uh, quality of life is still an issue, uh, across, I, I think across creative industries, um, and certainly still within the game industry, but people are trying to figure out what that looks like. Um, and it's pretty clear that, uh, I mean, lots of research shows that, um, you know, spending 80 hours uh, of a week at work doesn't really make you all that m much more productive. It just means you spend more time at work. Uh, so, you know, but at the same time, you don't want to be the person who isn't there and the boss never sees, even though the boss not, might not be there 80 hours a week. So it's, it's, it's super complicated. And, and that actually hasn't even changed since, <laughs> since I did the book. So, so, what are the changes that you've seen uh, since the time that you were embedded in these various uh, 
game development um, companies and now? Yeah. Uh, probably one of my favorite questions because there is so much that has changed. Um, uh, tools. So one of the things I talk about in the book are like, hey, let's get some tools that everybody can use. And, and suddenly, you know, here we are in 2015 and, uh, Unity, the game engine is one of the major fixtures. If you go to the game developers conference this year, their booth was the central booth when you first walked in the doors of the expo hall. And, you know, so tools have changed. Um, access to the kinds of, uh, tools necessary to, to make big games have changed. Um, mm. You know, you don't need to make a custom game engine to make a console game like you did pretty much in, you know, 2008. Sure, there were other, there were engines like on uh, Unreal out there at the time, but they were super expensive and they really, and they required tons of labor um, on top of, you know, this piece of software that you've paid for to even get close to making a game. Whereas now, uh, you know, not only Unity, but you have things like um, Game Salad or um, Corona, you know, like all of these tools that are out there that anybody can go fiddle around with and try to make games with. And so that's really cool. Um, on the... Uh, uh, the rise of uh, independent or indie game development, that's crazy cool, but it's also strangely tied to um, the closure of a lot of mid-sized game studios. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that you know doesn't get talked about a great deal is how many of the big indie developers out there, some of them got their start you know, just as hobbyists, but a lot of them got their start working for big game companies and they learned the the tools of the trade and the tricks and made the mistakes that every game developer makes. And now, you know, they've struck out on their own. Um, and so I, I think one of the things that I think about a lot is in the next, you know, five to 10 years, what will that balance be between, uh, independent game development and big studio game development. Because right now, I see a lot of this, the, the mid-sized studios closing shop and laying everybody off. And, and where do those people go? And what happens to the knowledge that all those people had about game development? Um, I, uh, other things that have changed, like I mentioned previously, like talking about diversity. Um, that's great. Um, it's it's been delightful to see that emerge over the last four or five years, particularly at the game developers conference. Um, you know, developers finally talking about it and really trying to cultivate um, diversity within the industry, um, uh, and and not just diversity of people, but also diversity of games and the kinds of things that you know we look at uh, uh, or the kinds of things that people look for when they look at games. Uh, Twitter has changed the landscape of (laughs) game development in really strange and interesting ways um, and not always good and pretty ways. Um, You know, uh, as uh, a game academic active on Twitter, um, 
I've certainly not experienced as much as some of my um, female colleagues have, but uh, it's uh, Twitter's been strange for the last six months. You know, if if uh, uh, if if it hadn't been for the last six months, I'd be like, Twitter's amazing for game developers because they can be visible and <laughs> and they can also receive death threats. So <laughs> there we are. <laughs> Okay, so one of the, the new things that we've instituted on New Books and Technology is the elevator speech related to the book. Like, pretend that someone somehow has found themselves at this point in the interview having not listened to the earlier portion. <laughs> and you want to give them, like, a brief summary, uh, call it your, your book trailer, if you will, about the book and why they should go out and purchase it or check it out from the library or whatever the case may be. What would you say? That's a really hard one. The, ele- the elevator pitch for my book is um, if you think video games are cool and interesting or you think they're worthless, <laughs> this this book is about how the sausage gets made. And uh, you should go read it because if anything is either really important or totally worthless, uh, it's probably worth knowing more about where it comes from. That was a really great elevator <laughs> pitch. <laughs> I have to say. So, so Casey, what's next? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I, uh, uh, I've recently finished one project uh, uh, that I'm, I'm writing on right now, which is about learning games because... Mm-hmm. Um, Serious games sort of came along while I was working on what would eventually become Developer's Dilemma. And when I first saw Serious Games uh, was when America's Army was the poster child of Serious Games. And I was kind of like, yep, not going to study that right now. <laughs> and uh, But then I came back and suddenly there were all these really you know interesting people doing learning games. And um, so... I had a big project on science learning games that I'm starting to write about and uh, uh, have another new project looking at uh, science crowdsourcing games. So uh, things like Foldit and uh, Eterna. So I'm, you know, my research is still about game development, um, but uh, game development in places that aren't uh, the AAA game industry. Mm -hmm. So, The book is Developer's Dilemma, The Secret World of Video Game Creators. And we're so happy that Casey O'Donnell was able to come on the show and talk with us today. So thank you again, Casey. Thank you, Jasmine, so much for having me. It was uh, great. No problem. So this has been New Books and Technology. Have a great week.